millions of people in the UK who haven't even got a thousand pounds in savings. And it's ultimately because... Ryan from Making Money Simple. This guy, every single little post, every little tile, one at a time, he's trying to make the world a better relationship with money. Ryan's platform is incredible. It talks all about investing, crypto, saving, everything that you need to know about money. Become financially free. If you work out your annual expenses and you times it by 25, that is how much you need to be financially free. It's called the 4% rule. With a zero-based budget, every month, every pound you earn, you do something with. So you either spend it, save it, or invest it. To give people like an insight into, I suppose, what you can actually make. So that's probably how I'd wrap it up. <laughs> Ryan, uh, making money simple. Welcome to the Ted Talks podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, mate. Looking forward to uh, speaking for the next hour or so. No, definitely. And, you know, personal finance is something that I think a lot of people talk about, at least in the kind of circles that we're in. A lot of entrepreneurs talk about it. A lot of people, a lot of memes, a lot of stuff you see online is like about personal finance and, you know, how to budget and credit cards that they're good for you, they're bad for you, you know, how to get out of debt. There's there's so many things we can talk about in personal finance. And what I really liked about your page is that it's just, and it's, I suppose this makes sense, it is simple. You know, it, it's just made simple enough that, you know, a business person who's got experience doesn't feel like they're being babied. But it also is simple enough that someone who has no clue what they're doing can say, this makes logical sense. I think I can follow this. I think I can do this. And I think I'll be okay. So I'm really looking forward to simplifying money further with you and, and talking about various different topics, including, you know, your Instagram and your social media, which in of itself is an arm of your business or or is your business, I suppose. And essentially, a lot, of, a lot of people don't think about that, like brand equals business and kind of like it's chicken and egg, I suppose. So before we get into that, you know, what, what got you started with investing? Because most people don't save and then some people save and then very few people invest. So how did you know, yeah, like what got you into it at first? Yeah, so I originally accidentally got started. I did a placement year in between my second and third year of university and was auto-enrolled into a pension. Um, so technically, it was about August 2017 where I accidentally became an investor. Obviously, most people, most adults in the country that are working for an employer will have a pension and that makes you an investor. But it's alarming how many people don't actually know that. Um, so we can come on to that as well later. Um, but then it was really in, during that year, actually, when I was working, I started reading quite, I got, I was studying economics at the time. I was quite interested in money and sort of personal finance and investing already, but I didn't really know too much about it. So the first book I read, pretty uh, classic and stereotypical, but it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think it must've been, yeah, either like late 2017 or maybe early 2018, um, and it was actually in the summer of 2018. I think it was August 2018 where I actually made, well, opened up a stocks and shares ISA, made my first investment after saving up a little bit of money from working for that year. Um, so yeah, it was probably just for reading that book. And I sort of went down a rabbit hole of reading loads of different personal finance and investing books. Um, but it was probably August 2018 where I became an actual um, proper investor, like actually meant to invest, although I had been investing for a year just through my workplace pension. And how old were you at that time? Uh, 20. So, you know, most 20-year-olds, most people, as I said, don't invest, but most 20-year-olds are definitely not investing or reading those books or thinking about these things. So, and I appreciate it was an accident and then you found the book and then you kind of went down the rabbit hole and then it, it opened up a whole world for you. But some people would do that. 
and that's it. Or they'd say, oh, it's too scary. Or, I don't want to lose money. It's too much of a risk. What is it about you or your upbringing, family, whatever it is that you then said, yeah, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like, go for it. To be honest with you, it was that year working and it wasn't that bad. Like it was quite social working in London and stuff, but I was thinking I don't want to be working in the city, commuting for the next 45 years. And this whole idea of a uh, financial freedom, escaping the rat race, all of that appealed to me, um, which is why then investing appealed to me. Um, primarily the books I read in were about investing in the stock market because that's more, much more accessible. Um, but then even like investing in the property market, whatever it sort of is, you can obviously generate monthly income. You can't forget capital gains over time. So it was the whole idea of, didn't want to be doing this for 45 years and investing was almost the way to uh even if it was like 10 years 20 years bring that forward slightly so you can uh, be financially free essentially and you know at that point you're making income from your were you making income from your job yeah 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 so you're making income from your job you're saving a portion investing a portion spending and i know on your instagram you you track your monthly kind of expenditure on stuff which is awesome at that time did you have a sort of controlled structure to, okay, I'm investing X percent of my income or was it like that's spare? Let me chuck it in. How did you structure that? And I suppose that kind of also is about budgeting as well. Yeah. So to be honest, I prop, I properly started investing monthly. I think it was from August, 2018 onwards. So I started, I made a load of mistakes at the start. Um, I started investing using a general investment account rather than, a stocks and shares ISA. I then opened up a stocks and shares ISA with a high street bank, which is pretty much a terrible idea. So then I found out about Vanguard. I first of all started investing into individual stocks. Then I also realized that is usually a terrible idea. So I then went to index funds. So sort of slowly, I don't know what time period it was over, but I made quite a few mistakes um, early on, paying high fees, not using an ISA, all of that sort of stuff. But then it was probably after a few months, I then sort of got to the Vanguard being my platform, stocks and shares ISA being my account, and then a global index fund called the FTSE Global All Cap being my main investment. And I've literally now followed that approach for nearly five years, been doing the same thing every single month. Um, but initially at the start, it was £100 a month because that's the minimum you need on Vanguard. So I was putting in £100 a month into the FTSE Global All Cap. Um, and it was mainly just coming sort of from my savings because when I went back to uni for the final year, I did have a part-time job for a bit, but only for maybe like one semester out of the two semesters. So I was sort of using the money I was earning just like live and have fun. And it was more my sort of placement year savings where I was drip feeding sort of a hundred pound in a month. So over the course of that year, it would have been about 1200 pound. And then I then went back on a grad scheme after um, I finished university. And that was probably when I properly started budgeting and yeah, allocating money to different things as you alluded to. And you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, hold on a minute. You know, if I invest, then there's a risk, which, yeah, of course, that's a fact. You know, we can't we can't avoid that. If I invest, you know, oh, it's, you know, a lot of people just have excuses or they have, you know, a lack of knowledge and they say, but I'm saving. That's fine. So what is the difference for people who aren't aware? And I suppose inflation and maths also comes into this between savings. So for people listening, saving is just £100 a month kept in an account, kept under your bed, end of. Investing is what we're talking about here, which is to invest to make money and make a return, but also potentially lose money. So what is the difference for people and why should people be investing? So I guess the bottom line is ultimately saving over the long term won't really help you build wealth and it won't really help you become financially free. 
Um, the main reason is because of inflation, essentially, which is at modern 40-year highs at the moment, being 10 plus percent in the UK and in most developed countries is quite high. Um, but over time, any money you save is just going to be eroded due to inflation. Saving is definitely a good thing to do. If you can learn that skill, it's definitely great because you're essentially paying yourself first by putting some money aside. Obviously, you're always going to be saving for something, maybe a house deposit, maybe a car deposit, maybe a holiday or your child's education. So it is good to save um, for sort of short to medium term goals. But any money you don't need for the long term, if it's sitting in a bank account, um, which even though rates are higher now, maybe like two, three, four percent, inflation is still at 10 percent. So you're still getting a minus six real return. Um, and that is ultimately why you need to be investing because investing won't necessarily always be inflation. As you say, you may lose money, but over the long term, if you look at sort of the broad stock market or even the broad property market, specific houses or specific stocks may fail. But if you look at sort of the broad markets, they generally go up over time. So they make capital gains whilst also usually paying income, being dividends. So you can always get the best of both worlds. And that's how essentially investing um, beats saving. I mean, if you look at the S&P 500, the, I can't remember off my head, but I think the dividend yield on that is about one and a half, two percent 2%. So even if um, you put money in that and it doesn't grow, you're still technically getting almost 2% interest on your money, which is people don't really look at it that way. And you're getting 3% in the bank, but that's got literally no chance of growing. Whereas in with the S&P 500, you're getting that. And hopefully on average, it will grow, you know, maybe 7, 8% per year over the long term. Um, so that's probably the main difference. Saving it's very difficult to build wealth. And if you speak to, I'm pretty sure any millionaire, any entrepreneur, anyone that's successful, they took a risk and invested, whether it was into their business, into property, into the stock market, into a combination of those things. Um, so that's probably how I'd wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, no, you're hundred percent spot on there. Like people don't realize that inflation is real, you know, but they talk about it. They say, Oh, you know, like I've ordered, you know, I went to Tesco's and ordered and I got less stuff than I usually did, but I paid the same price or I paid more or this packet's smaller, but it's the same price or it costs more. Like yeah. why is my property refurb costing 10, 20% more? Like inflation is very discussed and it's very like uh, spoken about in normal conversation, but people don't realize that that, that therefore is, you know, wearing away your money and its value. So you know, it definitely makes sense to invest. Like, of course, everyone has different risk appetites, which we'll talk about. And there are risks, which we'll talk about. But it makes sense. And you know what you said to to build wealth, even just to preserve wealth, is kind of like, yeah, you almost have to invest mathematically in order to preserve what you have. Because otherwise, you're losing 10% a year, or yeah. 4% or whatever it is. So it's, um, I think it makes sense. Now, this is not Financial advice, obviously, there'll be disclaimers <laughs> everywhere on this podcast. But, you know, it, for various situations, I think it makes sense to invest. Now, you said you started off in a general investment account, so a GIA. What Now, a lot of times you go on Moneybox, Nutmeg, whatever, they've got two options for you. One is a, a general investment account and one is a stocks and shares ISA. What should people be, you know, if they're going to invest and take it seriously and want to start from the bottom, which of those two should they have and why? A stocks and shares ISA all day um, or, or a pension, I guess, is the other main sort of type of account. And the reason why is because those two type of accounts have tax advantages. Um, 
Whereas with a general investment account, there are literally no tax advantages. Um, so a pension you comes out of your money before, so you, essentially you pay into a pension before you pay any income tax or national insurance. So you avoid tax legally, and then that money compounds over the years until you can access it. Um, whereas a stocks and shares ISA is almost the exact opposite, and you pay income tax and national insurance and everything today. But then once the money's inside of a stocks and shares ISA, it um, will then compound over the years completely tax-free. So no capital gains tax, no dividend tax, no bond interest uh, tax to pay on anything like that. So the tax advantages really of those two types of accounts are massive. Um, and it just essentially reduces your tax bill over the long term when you're investing. On the other hand, a general investment account, before you put money into an account, you're going to get taxed. If the money then if you sell and there, there are some sort of allowances so there's a capital gains tax allowance which is currently six thousand pound a year there's the dividend allowance which is a thousand pound a year both of those have been cut in half recently and are going to get cut in half again so the allowance is almost non-existent from next year but i think that'll be three thousand pound and five hundred pounds so the gia you will probably almost certainly if you're investing for years and decades will be paying a lot of dividend tax and probably some capital gains tax as you maybe sell some of your positions down to live off that money, um, which is why, yeah, you should definitely use up the £20,000 stocks and shares ISA allowance. It's almost a no-brainer. And then we also get a pension allowance, which is now £60,000. So if you can contribute to your workplace pension, you get an employer match, definitely take advantage of that. Um, if you can maybe open a SIP and put some money in that, I'd say take advantage of that all before a general investment account. There are some situations where a GIA can be useful. And I think one of the few ways is if you're a very high income earner at a young age and you know you want to retire early, so you essentially want to live off your money way before retirement age when you can access your pension, that is probably where it would make sense to use your £20,000 ICE allowance and then maybe use a GIA rather than a pension but even with that, with a pension, if you're a high income earner, you're going to get 40, 45% tax relief. The advantages are just huge. Um, so for 99% of people, it makes sense just to use your stocks and shares ISA and or a pension before ever thinking about a general investment account, because ultimately the tax advantages are just so much better. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I, I was the same as you. I started out with a GIA and I was like, hold on a minute. Even if I'm making a small amount of money a year, I'm going to make an even smaller amount of money after they've taxed me. And it's yeah. like you said, after it was just, it didn't make any sense. Uh, so, you know, and, and the stocks, as I said, just, just did. Uh, and a lot of people have a, a, a preconception about ISAs, maybe because of there's certain types of ISAs where the money's locked away for five years. You can't access it. Generally speaking, are stocks and shares ISAs accessible at any time pending you liquidating uh, or are they usually locked in for long periods? That are completely accessible. Um, and I think this is a misconception that comes from our parents because I know that mm. my dad would use ISAs when we were younger, uh, but it was essentially cash ISAs when the rates were half decent before like, the 2008 financial crash and money became really cheap and there was no interest on anything. Um, so when old generations talk about ISAs, it's normally cash ISAs when you can get a decent rate. As you mentioned, that's one of the four types of ISAs. Um, but with a cash ISA, you generally lock up your money for between one to five years and you get a fixed rate of interest. So I actually looked at this recently and I think a one-year fix at the moment, you get about 4% or 4.2%. 
And I think a five-year fix, you get about 4%. So both of those are once again massively below inflation. So even though 4% sounds good, and it's much better than interest rates have been over the last 15 years probably, um, at 10 11% inflation, you're still losing money at quite a rapid rate in real terms. Um, but that money is locked up, whereas with a stocks and shares ISA, the money is completely flexible and accessible, which is what I was sort of saying earlier on. If you have aspirations to retire early and maybe live off of that money in your 30s, 40s, before you can access your pension money at 55, which I think has gone up to 57. And by the time we get to retirement age, it'll probably be 60, 62. They're just going to keep increasing it. France done it recently as well, I think, with the state pension increasing it. Um, so it might be 65 by the time we get there. So you want to live off of your money in your 30s, 40s, 50s. A stock on ISIS just makes sense because it's flexible. Uh, it's tax-free withdrawals. It's a massive £20,000 yearly annual allowance you can use for an ISA. So unless you're earning six figures plus, which that's 0.1% of people, it's going to be very, very hard to actually use that allowance, which is almost a good thing because we get so much of it. So you might as well try and maximize as much as you can. Um, but yeah, the money isn't locked up and you can withdraw it penalty-free whenever you like. Awesome. And, you know, when we talk about investing, there are risks, you know, capital yeah. is at risk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, in crypto, I think has shown us that investing, you know, can have big risks. It is advertised all over it, but it's not as advertised as, you know, the shiny stuff or, you know, making 200% gains overnight and stuff like that. But when it comes to non-crypto investing for now, because the market's quiet, there's no buzz. So, you know, we won't get any more listens by talking about crypto. So we'll keep out <laughs> the um, headline. Uh, when it comes to normal investing, which so you know stock shares uh trackers anything what are the risks that people need to be aware of and also as well as risks what are the things that maybe aren't risks like but like people just need to be aware of like the fact that markets move up and down yeah so i think that's probably honestly the main one the fact is when your money is invested particularly when you first start investing you're going to literally wanted to you're going to be tempted to check it every day almost every few hours because it's exciting. Um, you know, your money's making money, then it's losing money. And it is a roller coaster in the short term. If you look at even, um, we can look at like an, an index fund like the S&P 500, which is the largest 500 US companies, even in the short term, that is just, it can be up and down like a yo-yo. You're making money, losing money. And often when there's really good days or bad days, it'll be on the news. You'll get YouTube videos recommending it, maybe a TikTok. So you sort of get sucked into um, this sort of roller coaster of emotions, but it's when you actually zoom out and you sort of look over the long term, you can see that all these sort of short term fluctuations are almost just like vertically up over the long term. Um, I think the main risk is, and this is obviously something that I done. So I used to when I first started investing, in, invested into individual stocks, and individual stocks generally are quite risky to invest into. The main reason being is that most companies go bankrupt. Even the largest companies, when we were growing up, like Blockbusters, Woolworths, loads of companies have gone bankrupt or they start performing poorly or they essentially, I guess, almost can't grow anymore. So that's when they start paying dividends and become more of a stable sort of company. Everyone wants to invest into these high growth like Tesla and almost like the Bitcoin of the stock market. And that's when it is risky because there can be massive fluctuations. Um, and ultimately with investing, there are disclaimers because you can lose money and you know, you shouldn't be putting all of your money in, into one stock because that's just risky. The approach to our to go down, as you mentioned a second ago, is to use trackers. So I personally use a global tracker, which tracks thousands of stocks in the global stock market. But you have US trackers, UK trackers, and they're essentially 
track a basket of companies. So as companies succeed and fail over time, more companies are going to come into the tracker and it's very, very unlikely you will lose money. I think the S&P 500 has never lost money over a 20-year period. Um, and if you're investing constantly, all the way on the way down, all the way on the way up, which is why I like automatic investing, and that's what I'm doing every month for the last five years, investing on the same day every single month. Even if the market is sort of flat, as you invest on the ups and downs, you'll still should hopefully make money over the long term. Um, but yeah, I think it's just the whole sort of emotional side of it, fear and greed, which drives the stock market. People want to be checking their app or portfolio constantly and it's just not good for your stress levels or like mental state and that's not really what you want to be doing when you want to be investing you want to be putting aside simply a portion you can afford each month and leave it there for the long term and i think that's the key difference between say investing and trading trading yeah you're going to look at the screen you're going to be in it you're probably going to have a lot more emotion on a kind of daily basis weekly basis depending on how you're doing it but investing is like it's investing it's the definition of the word. It's it doesn't investing doesn't necessarily mean for the long term, but in this case, it is for the long term because you know to invest in a tracker, invest in stocks and shares, and to think, all right, in three weeks I'm going to double it and pull it out. <laughs> you know, it's it's not going to happen. And it won't end well you know, if you think about that. <laughs> if it doesn't, and then you you know you follow TikToks and you're investing in some random thing, and then you're like, oh, so I didn't double it. I lost more than yeah. you know, and so like. I think people need to look at it sensibly and look at like your page and look at realistically, what are people making, right? Like what is the percentage gain? So if you're making 10% a year annually, but I'm getting promised 30% here, 40% here, check this new company out, go on the AIM market and invest in this oil miner. And, and it, you know, that is promising 40, 50%. We just got to think, um, okay. So everyone here who looks quite sensible is doing 10% a year, whatever. And I'm getting 30. You know, we've got to kind of use some logic and like sensibility about us, which I think mo- a lot of society doesn't because we want 30% tomorrow. Yeah. We don't want 10% over four years. Like that, that sounds shit when you compare yeah. it, right? Um, <laughs> which is the kind of draw of crypto. So I think it's like set and forget. You put it in and then it, it comes out at some point. But you know what? One thing that isn't really talked about often is when it gets taken out. So for you, you're investing a certain amount every month. It's automated. It's going in. You're not checking it necessarily that often. So when is your time frame? Like when are you going to uh, ignoring stocks that pay dividends? And we can talk about that. But you know, your amount is you know whatever X. At what percentage? What time frame do you take it out? If you take it out, and then what do you do with it? Very good question. And. To honest with you, I'm, I'm still quite young. So I get this question the other time on Instagram from maybe someone that's older. And I'm like, what's your plan? And I'm sort of always a bit like, oh, and I will live off the money eventually, but I'm not sure how much I need or how old I'll be. But essentially, the theory is that in terms of become financially free, if you work out your annual expenses and you times it by 25, that is how much you need to be financially free. Because uh, so you can then draw down, it's called the 4% rule, and you can draw down 4% from that money and theoretically never run out of money. Because on average, the stock market grows about 7 to 8% per year. So you draw down 4% per year. Of course, the stock market returns aren't linear. There will be a 30% crash and a 50% boom, like that there always is. So there is some sort of tinkering you can do where maybe on sort of good years, you still only take out 4%. So then on bad years, you take out maybe a bit less. Um, 
But that's sort of the theory to come financially free. Work out your annual expenses, which is why if you can be frugal um, and you don't you don't really care for materialistic things, you can honestly take like a decade or two off of your um, financial freedom age number. You know, if you want like a mansion and like a flash BMW and all these designer clothes, if you, that's what goes into your annual expenses, you potentially might be working another 10 or 20 years. So you got to think, is it really worth it? Like a bigger house of... You know, three bedrooms, five bedrooms, you know, a flasher car, still going to get from A to B. You can cut those expenses. You can maybe stop working when you're like 35 rather than working until you're 55. Um, but that's sort of the theory behind it. So for me personally, I'm very much in the wealth accumulation sort of phase. So try and increase my income, invest as much as possible each month. Um, but I think ideally, if I can maybe start living off that money sort of in my 40s, that'd be ideal. So I could potentially then maybe not have to work in a corporate job, take a more imp- enjoyable part-time job maybe, live off my stocks and shares ISA, and then when I get to my sort of pension age, then maybe live off my pension. Um, as I said, not thought too much about it at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, I'm trying to invest as much as possible. But yeah, something like that for me personally. But hopefully that sort of like maths theory a second ago can help people sort of work out their annual expenses, times it by 25, and think about how much they'll need, to how much they'll actually need to then sort of get to the financial freedom number. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think it's, it's definitely useful to know that formula because then people can apply it to their situation and what stage they're in and how much they need because it, it'll vary for everyone, right? So yeah, you know, that's definitely good to know. Now, I saw a video, I think you might have posted it today or quite recently about the best platforms to yeah. use to invest in, the best platforms to have ISAs with. For you, what are your top three platforms that people should use? So I'd say Vanguard or Trading Two One Two, essentially, those two. Okay, why, um, why, why either one? So the first, the first, first of all, platforms I've both got accounts with and have done for years, so I sort of know how they work. There are always new platforms popping up. There's a new one at the moment called Invest Engine, which sort of went a bit mad on YouTube last year because they're almost Vanguard 2.0. They're offering ETFs. They're offering lower fees than Vanguard. Um, but then it's like a new plat- new company that are massively loss-making. They have massive affiliate schemes, which is why, obviously, influencers want to promote them to make sort of themselves some money, which is fair enough. Um, so I've heard a lot about them, although I've still never used them. Um, but for me, Vanguard and Trades 1-2 are both low-fee. I think if you want to invest into index funds monthly, Vanguard's the way to go. If you want to invest into individual stocks or ETFs, then Trading 2-1-2 is the way to go. Um and in that video, I sort of go through seven different categories to assess four different platforms. So I also assess Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and Free Trade. Um, but essentially, those two platforms, Vanguard and Trains One Two, just win in those categories. So they're both very low fee. Vanguard is zero point one five percent platform free. Uh, free uh, Trains One Two zero percent platform fee. Um, they both have a good range. Of, well, I guess they both offer stocks and shares ISAs. So that's probably the main account that you want. Um, in terms of actually product offering, Vanguard, yeah, is the more index fund sort of set and forget approach. And they have a, a load of life strategy funds, target date retirement funds, um, global funds, US funds. If that doesn't make sort of sense to people, if you just literally go on YouTube and type in life strategy fund, Vanguard explain, there'll be a probably a five, 10 minute video, maybe from myself explaining what it is. So you can find that information out <laughs> quite easily. Um, trains one two have thousands of different stocks and ETFs. So maybe you want to go down that route, you have that. Um, so yeah, I sort of go into a lot of detail in the video across those seven categories. 
Um, but I would say they're probably the two best platforms for me. And there are always new ones coming on the market. And each platform has got like a slight different USP and they try to do things slightly differently. Like Free Trade have a SIP, Hargreaves Lansdowne have a Lifetime ISA. Um, they're all slightly different and all slightly different. But for me personally, Vanguard or Trading on 2 is the direction I always send people in. Fine. No, I think that makes sense. I think Vanguard is like the longest standing class. Everyone kind of knows it. It's just like the the one that's been there from kind of day one. So, you know, it kind of makes sense. Big name, big reputation, things like that. And then Trading 2 on 2, I'm sure it's been around for a while as well. I'm sure I heard it a long time ago. I tend to use Moneybox, Money Farm, Nutmeg, and Free Trade. I think the ones I use. Okay, that's interesting, actually, because you use more of the robo-advisors then. Um I don't really touch, I touched on that briefly right at the end of the video. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about why you use those personally. Cause I think they can work for people, but I also, yeah, no, go, go on. Yeah. Why do you use I think, them? <laughs> I think that's probably the main reason because so with, I think with Nutmeg Money Farm, with Nutmeg and Money Farm, it's set and forget. It's here's my risk profile. Do what you want. Move it as you want. I don't care. I like AI algorithms. I know humans are cool, but I'm happy with the algo to just, take my money and do its thing and nutmeg is wow outperforms everything my pension outperforms everything but my stocks and shares ISA with them is just doing really well and i've i've done nothing and i do not, i check it when i'm like oh yeah got money there haven't i or like oh ISA deadline so it's it's a proper set and forget and uh money box was set and forget but then recently i think they changed it and allowed you to invest in or you can pick trackers so i've picked like the there's like a health and aging one there's like a biotech i've put some in silver and gold so i've kind of picked trackers or etfs in there not individual stocks and then some of it i think is is some of it robo traded i can't remember but then free trade yeah is me and free trade's doing yeah. yeah fairly well uh i've just picked based on that i don't the app is gorgeous works really well really cool ui but like the charts, useless. There's not. They're just rubbish. Like the data is not maybe where it should be or could be. Probably on purpose from their end for whatever reason to be more approachable. So I just invest there on a fundamental basis. Is it a good company? You know, kind of really pure like fundamentals. Uh, I don't even look at the PE ratio or anything. Um, I like them all. They they um they generally make money over the long term. Uh, I don't have to do anything. I like them. I like them. Yeah, no, nice. Yeah, so I do kind of free trade in the video um, as well. And, and I've fallen out of favor a little bit just because their um, fees are constantly being increased. Um, and I've also been hiding more and more features behind the paywall. So £5 yes. a month for a Stocks and Shares ISA, which I think is going up to £6 a month, and then £10 for a Stocks and Shares ISA and a SIP going up to £12. And to access like lower FX fees and a wider range of stocks, you have to pay more and more money. So I think... They have been, I was a huge fan of free trade and I think they do have the best and slickest interface. Um, mm. Trains 1-2 is probably a better app. It just has more information. But for a beginner, Trains 1-2, I mean, free trade, sorry, like tab one, see your portfolio, see your holdings. Tab two, see your dashboard or where your money is. You know, it's easy to use. Um, but yeah, with the robo-advisors, I find it interesting because I find that a lot, they are very popular. Um, and I do, it's definitely better than doing nothing. And um it is easy because you essentially ask answer a few sort of yeah risk tolerancy questions, works out how cautious or adventurous you are, and then it puts your money into things based on that. 
But what you might find is the things we're actually investing into are probably just trackers. So when you say nutmeg's doing well, they're probably just investing heavily into maybe a US tracker. And the US has done well over the last sort of five, 10, 15 years, which is why it's making a load of money. Um, but I swear, Robo Advisor is definitely better than nothing, but usually they do charge slightly higher fees than platforms that are more autonomous, like Vanguard or Trading 212, because you have to make more of your own decisions. Um, but yeah, no, that's just interesting because I know I've got mates as well that use those just because they prefer it. Um, I always say Vanguard and Trading 212, not the Robo Advisors, but I thought it'd be interesting to chat about that briefly. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's something I'll look into. The reason I've never gone with Vanguard is when I first discovered them, they and with Hargreep, they're just so it just seemed quite old school and a bit yeah, they are a bit old Windows ninety eight, right? Yeah, Vanguard's very old school. It's got no, they have been improving the website actually and sort of making it a bit nicer, but there's still no app. And I know people our age want an app generally. Um, Hargreep lands down. It's, it's do embarrassing have an app. for them, really. Yeah, in the US they have an app, but not in the UK. And in Hargreep lands down, there is there is an app, but it's pretty terrible. So. It's probably not worth using. Um, oh yeah, I've got accounts of both of them still. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it is That's interesting. That's why I avoided it. Like, I'm just, if you've got a good app, a good UI, you got me. Like I need it to be pretty. I need it to be functional. If you're old school, I'll pay a little bit more in fees just for a better experience. Like I just, I'm just new school. I just can't deal with this old stuff. It just, it just annoys me. Um, okay. So if we, if we take a step back and we we think of maybe you know someone who hasn't invested before uh they maybe have saved a little bit and they're kind of making their first steps to investing in saving investing sorry now we've covered quite a few different things there but budgeting is budgeting essential and how should and how and why should people budget if you think it is essential so i would say it is essential but it doesn't have to be hard um, I think people like view budgeting as you get, you know, hundred percent of your money. You have to put like 10% into your like petrol and 20% into your rent. And there are budgeting methods. There's one called like the 50, 30, 20, where you put 50% into your needs, 30% into your wants or all that sort of stuff. 20 that you split it all up based on certain percentages and, and categories. Um, I personally, I'm not a fan of that and I've never done that just because I find it too restricting. I might go on two nights out this week, so I spend a load of money, and then next week I don't go on any nights out, but I've had two takeaways, and then the following week I've, I don't know, gone to gone to the F1, went to the F1 in Melbourne a few weeks ago, so then I've now spent a load of money at that, and I find if you box things up into these categories, it's a bit too restricting. So I essentially have this thing, I've made YouTube videos on it, but it's called, it's called, I call it the fun money calculation. And you essentially work out each month how much fun money you have to spend. And you can just spend that on simply whatever you want. So it's really simple. And it literally takes like a minute to set up, but you essentially put in your net income that you're going to get from your job each month. So just say 2000 pounds, you then minus all of your like necessary fixed expenses and variable expenses that you have to pay. So that might be rent. I don't know. You might have Netflix, you might have gym, variable expenses. You're going to have bills, you're going to have food. Maybe if you play football once or twice a week, you might have that as an expense. So you essentially track all your expenses that you know are going to come out for a fact. You then also minus all of the money you want to save and invest. So it might be £100 holiday fund, £100 Vanguard, Stocks and Shares, ISA. And then what you then get to, and what you probably find is your expenses are almost going to be the same every single month. So for me, I'd have my income, then I'd have rent, then I'd have gym, then I'd have Spotify, Netflix, then I'd have food, bills, and then Vanguard, Stocks and Shares, ISA, 
a bit into crypto and maybe a bit saving towards sort of my holiday fund. And then you're left with a number and whatever that money is, is essentially your disposable income that you can spend on whatever you want. So you're not got to categorize that into like eating out and nights out and sport and gigs and concerts. You can just spend that money simply on what you want. You can buy clothes. You can, if you have money left over, you can invest more. And this is why I then sort of turn it into a zero-based budget. With a zero-based budget, every month, every pound that you earn, you do something with. So you either spend it, save it, or invest it. So what I'll do is I'll have my sort of fun money, um, and then I'll use that. And if I have anything left over, then I might invest that last 50 quid. I might maybe buy myself something, put it away. So that's sort of how I go about it. I work out. And as I said, because all those sort of the calculations, literally the exact same every month, pretty much. <laughs> it's very, very changes. So I almost know how much I'm going to get and how much sort of fun money I have to spend. Um, and then that's what I do every single month. And I prefer doing that because it's much less restrictive. Of all of budgeting, people think, you know, are oh, a bit boring. You've got to spend X amount of money here, 10% there, 5% there. And it just becomes a bit overwhelming. But by doing that little calculation that I do, and I made a couple of YouTube videos on it, um, I just find it, yeah, much more free. And your money is much more sort of fluid because depending on your month, you might spend a load more money on takeaways or nights out or clothes or whatever it is. Um, so that's the way I like to go about it. I would say I like you should that. do something though. You should do something just so you're tracking and know where your money is going. Because otherwise, the amount of people that sort of get to the end of the month and don't know where their money's gone, you don't want to be in that position. So you want to have some sort of process, whether it's the more rigid, formal approach or maybe my sort of fluid and flexible approach. But yeah, you want to have something in place just so you don't get two weeks in and you're like, I'm not getting paid for two weeks and I'm going to run out of money already. <laughs> I've um, I've worked with so many people like that. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know, it, it makes so much, like I said, it's a zero kind of budget. It's like you, it needs to get to zero. It needs to be invested or spent because it's kind of, you've got two chances to invest there. You've got your, I must invest this every month. And then you've got, if anything's left, okay, we can invest it again. So I like that it gives you two chances to do that. Um, some people obviously may not, may spend it all, whatever, that's fine. That's how it works. Some people may need a stricter approach because if you give them X amount a month, it's all yeah. going on, yeah. you know, stuff. That's a good point. But I, I, I like the way that's done. I think especially like you are, when you're in control of your money, that fluid approach works really well. But I agree, we need something you know, even if you have your own business and you're you know, paying self salary, taking money out, you should still budget because, you know, it's like what is measured can be improved. And so you might think that you're spending X on Nando's every month when actually it's Y and you're like, yeah, maybe yeah. I should just bring that back a bit. Or, you know, it's, I think it's really helpful to make things more efficient. And like you said, it doesn't have to be that difficult. And it doesn't have to be on Excel. There's lots of apps and like things that read your bank accounts and can kind of almost do it for you. Am I right? Yeah, there are. So I actually personally do just prefer to use a Google Sheet just because it's a bit more old school, but it's just sort of I can adapt it and make it how I want to look how I want it to look. Um, but there are a lot of apps out there. There's one called Emma. There's one I think mm-hmm. called Money Dashboard. Um, but essentially, you give them access to your banking and they can see where your money is being spent and, yeah, essentially help help you budget from month to month. Um, I sort of like what you said, though. Essentially, there's a good quote. It's something along the lines of like what, gets tracked gets measured or or something like that and essentially even if you only do it for a few months it's still worth just tracking your expenses your saving your investing your spending just because then you actually know where your money is going and i mean a good exercise and i've done a podcast episode uh with a lady called kate i think it was end of last year maybe start of this year 
And she says that when she, when people are, so just say you're really struggling, you can't get the grips of your money. The best thing to do is literally print out your bank statements, right? Maybe for the last month or three months, bit old school, but print them out and literally get three different highlighters and you essentially go through what are your actual needs, what you need to spend money on. And then what are your sort of like wants that you're almost like probably not necessarily wasting, but too many takeaways, too many drinks, too many clothes. And what you'll probably find is if you add up the numbers, if you're getting to the point you're running out of money, you're probably simply spending too much money on things that you want rather than things that you need. And that, yeah, it's that sort of like, I mean, it's a whole sort of different topic of like impulse buying and fast fashion and trying to have like the coolest social media trend or clothes, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's that. So you almost do that old school method. You can see where your money is going very clearly. And then hopefully that will then <laughs> inspire you to take action rather than just, you know, being sort of on the breadline for the last few days of every, <laughs> every pay month because you're running out of money stressful that's 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 stressful um yeah. you know it's interesting because you read rich side Porter. dad now everyone i speak to because I, i'm a property developer I used to do property podcasts everyone i speak to has read the book i've never read it i refuse i'm gonna die without reading it because <laughs> I've, I, you know you've read so many books around it you're like i don't need to read it now it's yeah. just it's kind of past that point yeah um, I think it's definitely more of a beginner. It's probably a good like first book or maybe first few books to read, but a lot of the principles are generally quite basic. Pay yourself first, you know, in buy assets, not liabilities. And and most other personal finance books almost have some rich dad, poor dad principles in them, just in worded in a different way. (laughs) Yeah. He just got there first made it famous when it's all just standard advice. Everything is standard advice. Anyways, you then, you took that book and went into stocks and shares and investing. Everyone I know went into property, including myself. I didn't read the book, but I went into property. Now, one of, and I had this decision like that you maybe had where I read various things and was like, okay, I get into stocks and shares now, which is probably my preferred because it's more passive than property. But I looked at it and said, okay, if I've got 10 grand in the bank account, I can only put 10 grand into the stocks and shares unless I'm spread betting where there's leverage, things like that. I can only put 10K in and I'll make 8 to 20% a year if I'm lucky. Uh, I'll get, I'll get, I think I get five, I think I get 10 pounds every quarter in dividends from my free trade stocks. And I really haven't got that much money in them. So, which is quite promising. Uh, but I'd get, I don't know, 30, 40 quid in dividends every quarter with that kind of money. And I thought, yeah, this ain't going to give me financial freedom now. It might in X many years, but like you, I've got to keep working. I looked at property and said, if I've got 10 grand, I've actually then got 40 grand because I can borrow 75% and that's the 25%. And I thought this leverage, and also it's against an asset. So it's safer and, you know, bricks and mortar and things like that. And I thought, yeah, this just makes sense because I can make my money be 4x itself in value and lots of other things. So what made you look at stocks and shares as a, because it it will take longer. Well, unless you have half a mil or a mil ready to put in, it will take longer. What made you go that way instead of property development or investing? I think ultimately it's just more accessible Um, and almost, yeah, stocks and shares and then property is almost complete opposite. So as you mentioned with stock, the stock market, if you go to the bank and say, I've got 10 grand, can you give me 30 grand so I can put it in a stock? Unless you're Warren Buffett, you're not going to get anything from them. Whereas if you're going for your own house, you almost in a heartbeat, you'll get that money 
like relatively easily. Um, so, and that's the big thing about leverage. Of course, it can work both ways because if the market goes down, then the leverage is going to exasperate that on the, in the property market. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just, I think the, the dream ultimately for me would be to have both a property portfolio and a stock market portfolio. But I think just when I started investing, I was 20, didn't, wouldn't have been able to afford a property. Um, I was still sort of like living in London, trying to sort of have fun. Um, I've not even got my own house yet, to be honest with you. So I sort of thought I'll invest in the stock market, maybe get my own house. And then after that, maybe my 30s, I can start looking to build up a property portfolio. Um, but yeah, I think just also property is just more difficult um, to get <laughs> yeah. started with. Because I think with the stock market, you literally can, people will try to overcomplicate it and I'll go down a rabbit hole of trying to optimize everything. But ultimately, if you go on Vanguard Trading 212, you open a Stocks and Shares ISA, you set up a monthly investment into the S&P 500 or the FTSE Global All Cap, some sort of diversified fund, you're literally, you've literally done 99%. You can like maybe do little tweaks here and there to try and optimize. But if you do that, it will take you 10 minutes and you've literally, that's your long-term approach for the next 50 years. And my, what I've done when I, from August 2018, my Stocks and Shares ISA approach has now been the same for nearly five years. The only thing I do is maybe log in once yearly to increase the amount if my salary increases. And that's literally it. I think with property, it's much more sort of active investing and it's much more skillful. So you need to sort of find a good property. How do you know if it's below market value or not? You then need to be able to either do the work yourself or if not, outsource it to people that you trust and will do it on time. Um, so I just think it requires more of a team. And it requires more upfront money, um, whether it's from yourself or from a family member or from an outside investor. Whereas the stock market, literally nowadays, on free trade, trading two on two, you have one pound, you can invest. You can invest a pound a day, and that's all you need to do. I know there is actually ways to accept, to invest accessibly into the property market through REITs. Uh, I know like the Property Hub have now opened up some portfolio thing mm-hmm. where you can put 500 quid in and you can be a property investor. But I think realistically, you reap the most returns from property from what I've read and seen anyway, when you do it on your own. The more work you put in, the more uh, yeah, money you're probably going to make. Um, I do hope to get into it one day, but I think that's probably just the stock market is a bit more accessible, a bit easier and a bit quicker to get involved. I haven't got to sort of maybe save for sort of like a, a year or two to get a property deposit. And then it's like, oh, wait, now property is more expensive or now interest rates are higher. So I need more of an emergency fund to cover any more interest rate hikes. And I think there's a lot more moving parts, but that's probably also why, as I think you were alluding to, you can then make more sort of as more return you can make because it requires more effort essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. You summarize it perfectly. Property is, is a lot, lot harder. Um, you know, everything you said can be spoken about for tens and hundreds of hours. Whereas <laughs> on the investing side, you just showed how easy it is and they make it super easy to invest. Whereas property can be made easier and, you know, they've got, uh, you can like crowdfund and things like that. So you can sort of have access to it and the rates are decent. I think you get 8% back and it's like almost guaranteed fixed. I don't know how they describe it, but yeah, the more work you put in, the more you get out of it. So speaking of what you get out of it, uh, I think a lot of people don't talk about how much money they make from their stocks and shares and you put it all on your Instagram. So people need to go check that out. The link will be in the bio. <laughs> but in terms of a percentage wise, at least, you know, over the past X many years, what sort of percentage gains are you making per year and any dividends you're sort of getting from that? Give people like an insight into, you know, I suppose what you can actually make from, from stocks and shares and investing. 
Yeah, so it's so I'm looking at my portfolio now. So I've got like a spreadsheet. So it says that I'm up at the moment 21%. So that would be across the last sort of four or five years. Um, it's a bit, with investing, it's a bit difficult because I've got sort of like a pension. So half of the money in the pension is actually free. It's from my employer. So that technically is like my cost. Um, but it's not, I have it down. I probably actually need to work out. That's all I've got my cost and my equity. And I do like a simple straight line calculation to work it out. And that's saying 21%. But realistically, that cost for my pension anyway is actually half of that because my employer put in half. I've also got a stocks and shares lifetime ISA, which I no longer contribute to, but 25% of that is from the government. So that's once again, free money. So I probably almost, it, so it would be actually be higher than 21%. Um, but it's hard to know. To be with you, it's not probably that impressive over the last sort of four or five years, maybe sort of five to 6% a year on average. Um, which now, because the market's been, I guess, because inflation now has been uh, so high the last sort of 12 months, it's actually not been that great. When I start, first started investing in 2018, there was a massive crash in November 2018. Um, and I, that was when I had some individual stocks and they like plummeted. <laughs> so I, I lost some money there, ended up moving into index funds. There was then um, like the COVID crash of March 2020, where the market dropped 30, 35%. Then, as I said, over the last sort of year, 15 months with interest rate hikes, which are pr- literally the worst thing for the stock market. Um, I assume it's probably the same for the property, property market as well, just because they just destroy confidence. Um, over the last sort of 12 to 15 months, the return's not been good. I actually done a Vanguard portfolio update, um, which is my stocks and shares ISA and my SIP on my YouTube a couple of weeks ago. And over the last 12 months, I'd actually lost 1.87%. So hopefully that actually gives a realistic view of investing in a stock market. You're not going to make money every single year. Um, but yeah, over the sort of last five years, my spreadsheet shows 21%, but it's with all the free money I sort of t- talked about, it's probably a bit higher than that. And so, so people really understand this. Does that mean if I invested a hundred thousand pounds now, and you kind of said that, let's say I made, let's say I made 5% a year for the next five years. Does that technically mean I put 100 grand in and at the end of a year from now, I could take out five grand of interest money made and leave the rest there. And then in a year from then, I could take out five grand. And is that how people could make money from it? You could do, but you don't want to. The reason being is because the stock market returns. I think property returns are generally relatively stable. You sort of know, I think it's on average property prices... Um, double every 10 years that's happened for like hundreds of years um, whereas the stock market is much more volatile in a sense that you as we've sort of seen even in the last few years you could lose 20 percent then make i, I actually i've had a video on this actually a while ago but even though the average return of the stock market is between seven and ten percent the actual return in any given year is very almost Unlo- very, very unlikely to actually be seven to ten percent. It's either going to be a lot higher or a lot less, <laughs> which is obviously it just averages out of that. So, I think it's hard to almost it's 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 hard to almost treat it like a savings account and just say earn X percent, take out X percent. You don't know what the market's going to do, but you don't actually want to do that just because the real power of investing in a stock market, as probably the same as the property market, is compound interest. If you have a hundred k, get five percent, leave that five k in and get 5% again, you're then earning money on 105K rather than 100K. 
And it's sort of over time, that compound effect, you then get in dividends, you reinvest the dividends, you're making a gain, you leave the gains in. And that's how you look at the graph of sort of Warren Buffett's wealth. Obviously, he's a bit of an outlier because he's the GOAT. But most of his wealth, I think 99% of his wealth has come after the age of like 60 or 65, something like that, when he was very old, just because it's almost compound interest, the snowball effect is very, very low. And then as you get older, it just, yeah, because you think about it, right? You start investing, maybe after a few years, you have five grand invested. Even if you make 10%, even if you make, say, 20% on that, that's only a thousand pounds. It's not really much. But imagine you fast forward 20, 30 years and you have 500,000 pounds invested and you make 10%, all of a sudden that's 50 grand and that's literally nearly double the UK average salary. So it's sort of a long-term thing where you've got to contribute over time and you sort of group the benefits the longer you can, uh, yeah, hold on to it. You always don't want to die without using it. So it's one of those sort of middle grounds where <laughs> you've got to you know, build it up and then live off of it and enjoy it. Um, but you've got to sort of wait decades in all honesty when it comes to the stock market. Yeah, I think that's a kind of a bit of a reality check, I think, as well, because, you know, it's nice to see these numbers, 10% every year, 10% every year. But then actually, as you said, the real, you know, gain, the real impact does take decades. It does take a long time, which is why it's important to start early, right? The earlier yeah. you start, the sort of longer you have to then generate more money, essentially. So, yeah, yeah that, that totally makes sense. Now, just to take a little um, divergence from investing because i've written this down and i think it's important to talk about because uh, credit cards now there's a lot of debt in this world i mean the governments have the biggest debt but no one talks about that so we'll, <laughs> we'll skip over that um there's a lot of personal debt in this world and i think a lot of it comes from credit cards because you get a nice little bit of plastic and if you've got an amex which is so wild to me um, you don't even need a pin half the time it just you just use it um you know or if you do have a you know a credit card with a pin or whatever all you do is put it in and you're like ah that's seven thousand here's my pin done and you're like that was easy <laughs> whose money's that and you're like it's, it's it's mine like you owe it yeah now you know obviously with some credit with a lot of credit cards you can pay at the end of a year you can keep moving the money on fine with amex as far as i know it's like you pay every month it's which is i think arguably better because it means that you're in the shit like if you don't like it you need to keep on top of it but a lot of cards will let you move around that balance for however long and it's all very easy to spend now are credit cards, and this is a huge question, take it in whichever way you want. Are credit cards a good thing, a bad thing? I know they improve our credit score, but, you know, yeah, are they good or bad? And how can we be responsible with them? So I think it ultimately depends on the person. Um, I personally really like credit cards. Um, but I think if you know you're going to be irresponsible with them, just avoid them at all costs. I think a lot of particularly younger people get into huge trouble before they even know anything about money because they get a credit card, they think it's free money, they then only pay the minimum, so they start then paying massive interest. And before they know it, you know, they've not even finished school or uni and they've got thousands of pounds of debt and I've just set up set like set up so far behind. I saw a crazy stat the other I tweeted this a couple of weeks ago. I think oh, I can't remember how many it is, but there's like millions of people in the UK who haven't even got a thousand pounds in savings. And it's ultimately because they're probably in credit card debt and trying to pay it off. So I think with credit, and this is probably actually, people say things should be taught in schools. I think realistically, if things were taught in schools, like if you were 15 learning about taxes, you probably would be bored. 
potentially. There should probably be a class for maybe sixth formers or at uni or college. And I think in some schools there are. But credit cards probably are one of the things where they actually need to be taught. I'd probably say budgeting as well. But credit cards, just because you can almost be 18 and be in financial ruin just because you don't know anything about them. And I think if... But if you look, talk about it from a different point of view, if you know you're going to be irresponsible, you know you're an impulse buyer, I would just say it's not worth it. The perks, even though there are good perks you can get, if you get yourself into debt and you're paying interest and you're destroying your credit score, then the perks are nowhere near the like, downfalls and the cons that can come. On the other hand, I think if you are sensible, um, then they are just amazing. You can. I, I literally have a... There's loads of cards where um, you can get like lounge access. So every flight I take pretty much, I get into the lounge for free, which is just lovely, much more relaxed. You get free food, free drinks. Um, Other ones give you cash back or maybe points. So it's literally normal spending you're going to do anyway. You can get money back. So the sort of three-step approach that I talk about when it comes to credit cards is if you want to first of all get a credit builder card, so some sort of like basic card where maybe you get a bit of cash back or maybe even from your high street bank, you then want to sort of set it up first of all, before the card even comes. So it's paid off automatically every single month. It's normally very simple. Funnily enough, when you actually go to set it up, it will only have the minimum amount and you have to then change the option to say in full. But you want to pay off in full from your current account every single month without fail. Um, and then all you then do is, and all this is what I done when I was at uni and I got my first one. I think it was also when I was 20 years old when I started investing. I just put normal everyday expenses on it maybe food shopping, maybe petrol if you've got a car. And then because you've got the direct debit, it's getting paid off automatically every single month. And you slowly build up your credit score. As your credit card that builds up, as you mentioned, you can get an Amex, which is probably the, the credit card selection isn't very good in the UK. It's much better in the US, but an Amex is probably the best card you can get in terms of perks. You can get a British Airways Amex where you get sort of a companion voucher. You can get the Amex Gold, which is probably the best all-round card where you can earn points that can be used for flights and you can convert them into other stuff. Um, so it is definitely a double-edged sword. And I think ultimately, if you know you're going to be irresponsible, even though there's a chance you could misuse them, it's just not worth it. Because if you get yourself into debt, um, yeah, it's obviously just heartbreaking. So only use them if you know you're going to be sensible. But that's why that sort of three-step process, and particularly step two, of setting up that direct debit to pay off in full every single month is the most important. Um, so yeah, that's probably what I'd say on those. So probably depends on the person. And I think you could probably, after a five-minute conversation with someone, you probably just maybe how they would be with money and you could probably recommend whether it'd be good to get one or avoid one. <laughs> Yeah, and and credit card companies are not going to have that conversation. People need to know that just because you've been you can get a credit card doesn't mean you should have one because it's in their interest, literally in their interest, for you to get a credit <laughs> card. Like, good fun. You know, it makes sense, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, look, do they you know want you to get into debt? I, I don't think so because it's quite annoying having to sue someone and you know PGs in it. In fact, they probably don't necessarily want you to get into debt. It makes them look bad as well, but... All they, they want, want you to do is, that, yeah, they want you to just pay them. They, they don't really care what happens, but they want you to pay the minimum. So you're paying them extortionate interest every single month. And when you first get a credit card, the interest will be 20, 30, 40%. It'll be massive because you've not got a credit score. So even if you're putting 50 quid on it a month, you, the interest is then going to be maybe 15, 20 quid on that 50 quid. And that's going to be paying every almost over the year. Then that is almost how the stock market and the property market compounds positively for you. Credit cards do the exact opposite and it compounds negatively for you. So that interest will then be earning more interest as the years and months go on. So 
um, yeah, they want you paying the minimum just so they can charge you extortionate interest and hope you literally never check your credit card balance because they'll keep just ripping you off of the interest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and end of the day, it's business. If we had a credit card company, mm. we'd do the same shit. It's just, it is just, is just life. However, there are some good ways to use credit cards. You know, if you're buying a car, for example, and you, you know, you want the section 75 protection or you want to put a chunk on it and kind of, you can move your money around. But I think this is a bit more advanced when you're in a space to to do that. Um, and also, I think something, and I noticed this with Amex, I only have like one or two other cards, is that, yeah, that limit, every three months, oof, goes up, goes up. Yeah. My limit right now, I'm just, I look at it and think, this is ridiculous. Shouldn't have that and, much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I could, and, it, and I have a friend who has, I think she said, she, yeah, she had like 50 or 80 grand at one point. And I thought, to be able to just go, bang and that money is and then you owe that in about in about seven to 14 days depending yeah. on the time of the month like it's scary and people need to just like realize that okay it's credit but you're gonna owe a debit to the credit pretty soon um it's not like a loan for 12 months you know like, people yeah. need to think about it um, people think like it's free said, money but it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? But unfortunately, we need them to boost our credit score. So it's kind of like, yeah, get it, one. Which is why I just say to people, yeah, get get a credit builder card, which might not be the best, like an Amex, but get a credit builder card, set up an automatic direct debit, put normal expenses on it, whether it's a, even if it's your weekly food shop, because then you're at least going to be building up your credit card, your, your credit score, sorry. And as you sort of alluded to, there are p- benefits of having a credit card. The main, most important one being that you can get a credit score. So if you've got a great credit score, and it's actually very easy to get, I think after two years of using the credit card, I had an excellent credit score on the three main credit bureaus. Um, and I was like above average compared to the country, which is mad. If I'm at 22, all I've done is put my food shop at uni on this. And now I've somehow got an amazing credit score, but that now means I can get lower, obviously rates on property, on cars, on any sort of loan you're taking out. As you mentioned, there's um, consumer protection. If you're buying things online, buying it with a credit card is much safer um, there's also, as we mentioned, sort of perks, rewards, air miles, cashback, whatever it is, just for normal everyday spending. Um, so there are definitely perks, but the ultimate con of owing interest and destroying a credit card score far outweighs all of those if you're not sensible. Hundred percent. And um, if we kind of if we kind of move off investing and we talk about your social media, right? Because your Instagram, particularly, has grown quite quickly. You have a lot of engagement. You have people commenting and i'm sure they're dming you and people learning people showing interest um you wrote a book recently as well and i know you posted a video on youtube about the income streams from the social medias and i know social medias don't pay well at all even with a million followers the amount of money that they directly pay you is like is really not that good so for you why because you, you could invest yourself in silence do your thing live in australia with all your big ass spiders and and all that and like be happy in the sun and not talk to anyone why did you start this page um because obviously it's helpful for other people i know why people follow it and what they get from it but what what do you get from it i suppose and why did you start it I think I should ultimately find it interesting, like investing in personal finance. Even now, I keep up to date with news, keep up to date with um, new books that are coming out. So I find it interesting and it's, yeah, always sort of have done for years. And that's why I started it originally. Um, and that's sort of why I can, I've been having my Instagram now for over four years. 
Um, and I feel like if I didn't enjoy this, I would have stopped long ago. Um, the first year was a bit hit and miss, but it was sort of really during COVID, a lot more free time, probably like a lot of people. I sort of doubled down on it and it sort of took off a bit, particularly from, yeah, March 2020 to maybe August 2021. That was sort of where it peaked in terms of engagement and growth. Um, but even with like lower growth, lower engagement, I still try and post pretty regularly. I just find it interesting. You learn about new ideas all the time from it through my Instagram was actually where I learned about like a lifetime ISA. I've actually learned quite a bit of property stuff from there for pulling property accounts. So even though, um, and I guess because I've actually now got an account similar, you can almost speak to those people rather than a random person, they might not reply to me. So there's sort of positives from that sense as well. And then I just sort of mentioned, I make some sort of income from it. It's nowhere near as enough to live off of, but I make a few sales on my book, might do the odd brand deal, make YouTube videos. So um, there are sort of like, I guess, monetary benefits, even though they're not large at the moment, but over the long term, they may be, who knows. Um, but yeah, ultimately, just because I find it interesting and I sort of almost... Because I'm very transparent with like how much I invest, what I invest into, my spending, and they, the posts sort of can be taken goodly or badly, but they're normally people appreciate the transparency because it helps them understand what to do. So, yeah, getting people to invest is the main sort of aim. So I'll keep trying to do that and keep posting. <laughs> I love it, and I think yeah, people definitely react you know badly when it, especially when it comes to money or things like that oh you're posting you put 40 grand in when like we're trying and I, I i get the comments but also it's just it you know you're not doing it for that reason you're not saying oh look at me and look at you suffering look at me it's like it the internet is full of weirdos and, and people with <laughs> something to say and on that note though how you know how time consuming is your you know your social media because you're on a few different platforms you know, at the very minimum, you've got the podcasting, you're YouTubing and you're Instagramming, you know, this stuff takes equipment, it takes time, it takes editing, you know, like how much time do you think you're putting in a week or a month into your brand and your social media? It's very time consuming. I'd probably say it's almost like a second full-time job in all honesty. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'll spend most evenings doing it. If I'm not out of the weekend, I'll spend sort of time making yeah, YouTube videos, TikToks, podcasts, whatever it is. Um, if I was doing it purely for a sort of, and I actually do work, I do do, I di- didn't actually do one this year, but I've done an income video for my 2021 making money simple income. And I think my hourly rate of pay was like 10 or 11 pound in terms of how many hours I'm putting in. So from a financial sort of standpoint, it, it's not worth it. I could probably make more money from doing other stuff, to be honest, if you're working more hours of work, whatever. Um, but yeah, as I said, I just sort of find it interesting, which is why I carry on doing it. Um, but it is time consuming. Um, I try and outsource some of the YouTube video making and podcast editing and stuff now. So I was doing all of that myself um, for the first sort of, yeah, really for most of it. But now I'm sort of trying to outsource it. Um, but even that is still time consuming, making Instagram posts. Yeah. Making YouTube videos, scripting them, recording them, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I still enjoy it. So I'll keep, keep it up for now. <laughs> and I think, you know, this question may not necessarily affect you because you're doing it for a reason that isn't necessarily to make money from, but you know, personal finance and finance is a very competitive space. It might be one of the most competitive in terms of like the amount of accounts, the amount of stuff that is out there. So, you know, I suppose advice for people who are maybe trying to get into the same space. I think you've covered a few of these, but what do you think it is about your page and your profile that has allowed you to grow the way you have and, and have the engagement you have? And does it ever kind of deflate you or kind of stop you if you sit and think, 
flipping heck, I'm one of 300 people posting this topic now. How am I going to compete? Yeah. So I'll say on the first question, it probably, um, so it started off really as just, I would make graphics that broke things down really simply. So I think that's probably why my page first started growing traction, because it was like trying to make money concepts simple. And when I started it, there was literally no UK accounts. It was all just American accounts. So it was almost like a sort of gap in the market. Um, but then over time, it was anonymous at the start and it was pretty sort of like, yeah, just graphics. And over time, it's sort of, I put my face more out there and I've also been a lot more transparent. So I probably that's now what it's probably sort of resonates with and associated with particularly people in their twenties who are trying to invest. Um, that the second question. Not really. I don't know. I still think the pie is just so big, even if there are hundreds, thousands of creators, um, there's always your sort of own separate take or opinion on things. And I always say to people anyway, when they ask me, you should just follow other accounts because just because I'm doing something, it works for me. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best for you. So you should follow other UK content creators, not just stock market, also property, also crypto, also US people, Australia people, just to get like sort of broader understanding. And you can sort of pick and choose who actually resonates with you because my post might not be for people. <laughs> so it's one of those things where I think sort of pie is big enough that everyone can still do well. Um, but it does take, yeah, as we sort of spoke about, as I'm sure you know as well, a lot of sort of effort and time invested and often for sort of not much financial reward, which is why you sort of want to enjoy it and actually, yeah, be interested because otherwise you're going to give up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think the last point is so important. When people are building their brands and using social media, it's great to do it for business reasons or for income or for this. But actually, if you're not enjoying it, if you're not passionate about it, you know, how are you going to, like I've put a thousand posts out on Instagram alone. I think you're not too far off that number. Yeah, yeah. I'm at 990 hell? something actually. I need to do a special post yeah. for my thousand. <laughs> I saw that today and was like, like yeah. between us, there's 2000 posts here. Like, how on earth could we do that if we didn't enjoy it? Like, it would be so painful. It would be, it just wouldn't work. So we have to enjoy it, even if it is for another purpose. Because if you don't, then your content's going to be crap. People aren't going to engage with you. People are going to know. When you're not into something, people know straight away. And you clearly are passionate about this, which is part of why people enjoy the content. Speaking about enjoying, do you enjoy your day job? Uh, yes and no. I don't actually, so I sort of work in like finance in the city now in Melbourne. I don't really mind it. What I quite like about sort of day job is, is it's very social. And I feel like mm. being an entrepreneur and all this stuff is very much glorified, but ultimately it's very lonely. Yeah. Like even doing yeah. this whole side hustle, making money simple is 99% just me editing a YouTube video or looking back through old books and making posts on Instagram or Twitter. Um, it's not, yeah, particularly social. It's very much a lonely <laughs> sort of uh, way to, yeah, I guess, work. Whereas with sort of working in the city, people are like generally quite young. People are quite social. You know, you go to the kitchen for a cup of tea, you bump into someone you know. It's sort of, in that sense, it's um, enjoyable. But I think, the also, yeah, I don't know, it's a tough one. Cause like the work, you're sort of with loads of people. I feel like ultimately, if you, I could turn making money simple into like a small company, I would enjoy that more because I'm like helping manage people and maybe having an impact. Whereas where you really like a firm is sort of like you're almost like a number, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, which isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. You're like building your experience, building your skills, building a network, all of that stuff. Um, but as I sort of mentioned right at the start of the video, I don't really want to be in the corporate world for the next 30, 40 years, which hopefully maybe making money simple can get me out of that one day. <laughs> 
I think you can. I think there's so many avenues that you can do it. And with your following as well, there's just so many different ways that, you know, in this sector, people are making money from like doing it full time or doing it part time, but still making a, a significant chunk of money. So I think there's definitely something there. I think that applies to a lot of people. Like if you have a passion and you're good at it and you're building something and you've built something from it, there will always be a way to monetize it. It may not be what you want to do, that, that's something else, but there will always be a way to monetize it. So, right, which brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing all those tips with us. I think this has been a really nice kind of, almost a beginner's guide to investing, to budgeting, to being sensible with your money. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, all your links will be in the show notes below. But you published a book, I think about was it about a year ago? Yeah, it was about 18 months ago now. And give everyone a quick synopsis. What is what is in the book? Why should they read it? Yeah, so it's called Stop Waiting, Start Investing. And then the sort of slogan is, uh, oh, I can't remember now, it's like how to build long-term wealth with 10 minutes of work, something like that. The whole idea of the book is that people get so sort of bogged down with like what should you invest in, what platform you should use. And the book essentially is a very simple framework just to – get started investing with literally the exact approach that I've used and used for five years. Um, the first part of it is just some more basic stuff about like compound interest and automation. The second part goes through the stock market, how it sort of functions with index funds, ETFs, all these different companies. And then the third part is probably the most valuable part where it goes through the sort of three-step process that I regularly talk about um, on my different channels about choosing the platform, choosing an account, choosing an investment. But it goes a lot into the theory of why the approach that I talk about is probably the best approach in my opinion. Um, yeah. I mean, if people read, if people, yeah, they, if go DM me. I can send you the link. Um, if you don't like it, I'll literally give you your money back. Um, but hopefully it can actually get people invested. And I do still now make the odd sale when people will say I started investing because of, uh, because of something I wrote or said. So that almost sort of keeps me going even when it's looking bleak. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Sounds like a good read. And I'll, I'll put the link in the in the show notes as well. So Ryan, at Making Money Simple, you've got a very good tag there. Like that's, that is a, I can imagine that's a very in-demand popular uh, Instagram name and you've got it with no underscores, no numbers, nothing. I saw that today and was like, that's a domain name. Yeah. That's, that's like OG. worth keeping. <laughs> so um, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and everyone go follow Ryan, check out his tips. And uh, this is not financial advice. I have to end with that. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been a good hour and hopefully people have enjoyed it. Um, if anyone has any questions as well, they can DM me on Instagram. I'll try and help them out or point them in the right direction. Um, but no, thanks for having me on. And I um, hope everyone who is listening enjoyed it.